I would like to welcome you all to Core Voices Talk Show. It is my pleasure to be your host. I'm Jasweer Kaur Rababan. I'm here with you every week with a new wonderful guest every single week talking about amazing topics and important issues. If there's something that you want to hear about, write to me. Write to me at corevoices at gmail.com. Go and support us over at corevoices.org and help us to amplify your voices. Help us to remove the taboos and the shame around everyday normal topics. There's nothing that should be tabooed. As a community, we should be able to talk about everything, lift each other up and inspire each other. That's what this space is for. Today, I have a beautiful sister to join us and I'm very excited to introduce her. Jaspreet Kaur, also known as Behind the Netra for her poetry. She is an award-winning spoken word poet from East London. With an academic background, she has a bachelor's in history a master's in gender studies, which is phenomenal. I want to know more about that. She spent the last five years teaching history, sociology and politics in secondary schools across London. Her poetic work focuses on themes such as gender inequality, mental health stigma and the post-colonial immigrant experience. Jaspreet actively works with national governments, corporations and charities such as TED, the UN, and women's networks across the UK, using her poetry and writing to inspire and drive social change. Her TED talk, How Poetry Saved My Life, is one of the many examples of this. She's an avid humanitarian and an ambassador for Binti International, me too, and also an ambassador for Time to Change. In 2020, Jaspreet has been awarded the Ben Pimlet Writer in residence, Residency, sorry, I can't speak today, I'm going to say that again. In 2020, Jaspreet was awarded the Ben Pimlet Writer in Residency at Burbeck University as a research fellow with the Politics Department. That is incredible. We're going to talk about that today for sure. She's currently working on her debut book, Brown Girl Like Me, a narrative nonfiction exploring what it means to be a brown British feminist in this new decade, which was recently signed by the world-renowned publisher, Pan Macmillan. Wow, those are some pretty incredible achievements. Just breathe, welcome to Core Voices. Thank you, thank you so much for having me. Hi everyone, from across the world, this is amazing. Yes, you've got an international gathering here ready to welcome you. <laughs> it's such a joy to have you on the show. And there's so many wonderful things that I've just read in your bio, but that I knew about you from before that I want to talk about. We don't get to see many brown women in respectful spaces in the media or in society. And I'm grateful that there's this new wave coming forward with our generation. And I've seen you in the light of the media in the recent years holding that space. And as a sister, I want to say thank you, but I know that it can't have been easy for you. So we will definitely get into that. The first thing I want to ask you is how you are with everything that's going on in our new world that we're sitting in at the moment. How are you? I feel 
even that question alone, what a question to start with. It's I've, I've been thinking about this question, even when I'm asking other people about how they are right now, I kind of have focused it in on asking people, how are you today? Um, how are you right now? Because I feel this time in lockdown, what we've been going through internationally for the last few months, has surfaced so many different parts of us and so many different emotions, whether they are positive ones or happy ones or darker, more negative ones. I feel like every day has been very, very different. And I think I started lockdown feeling very anxious, very confused, um, very scared, which I'm sure many people also felt. Um, and it was a big shift in, in, in my mindset in, in the terms of a lot of my work was changing. A lot of what I do on a day-to-day -day basis would have to change. Um, a lot of my financial situation would have to change. And those first couple of weeks were tough. Um, but I think once I settled into lockdown and settled into this new normality and this new reality. Um, I've been using tools, I'd say I've been using for a long time to help manage my anxiety and to help manage my worry. Um, and I'm lucky enough to say I am someone who has, yes, suffered from anxiety, depression and quite a bit of trauma previously in my life. Mm -hmm. But those tools that I've built over the years to get me through those times and to help me manage my anxiety are the exact tools that I've been using now during this really difficult time mm. and for me that is writing and that is writing poetry um, and that is my form of therapy and something that I always turn to so I have been writing a lot um, and that is helping me manage the day-to-day -day worry the day-to-day -day anxiety but today in this moment how am I feeling I'm feeling really good I'm I'm in a very comfortable, happy place. Um, had a beautiful day at home with my family. Um, so I am doing very well. Good, I'm glad to hear that. And I'm glad that you're using your creative tools to help you. I do the same thing with my music. So mm. for me, sick music is my therapy, my go-to when I feel unsettled, um, mm. or not good in my mood, or even when I feel good as well. Um, that's where I'll go to. I'll go and pick up my Del Rabah or I'll go and pick up my Rabab and I'll sit there and that's my poetic expression. Yeah. So, and they are. And music is all art forms, um, whether it is through our instruments or whether for me it's through the pen, it's mm -hmm. all an art form. Um, and they all have such power that I feel people don't realise. Absolutely. I, I agree with you 100%. I think arts are the biggest form of therapy that we have available to us. And I personally believe that they were used very differently at the time, mm. like for example, of our gurus, that mm. these were the techniques that were available for people to, to manage and deal with their wellness. Um, mm. We don't read much about the, the mental and emotional wellness of the Sikhs at that time. Mm. And I don't think it's because problems didn't exist. Mm. I think that they had different methodologies and techniques to deal with them. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think poetry are definitely part of that. Absolutely. And this is what I guess one of my biggest missions is, is to show people that art can be used in that way mm -hmm. um, and that we all have the ability to try that, especially for communities like our own, communities that are often marginalised from other sorts of mental health services um, or perhaps can't access other forms of more formal mental health services. Um, and what I mean by that is counselling or therapy. Um, I feel for our communities, it's so important that we do find these other 
form, forms of therapy or these other forms of outlet to manage our well-being. Um, and that's why I think art could be a, such a perfect tool for, for our community more specifically. So what type of art do you lean towards that helps you? I would say that my writing is my art and poetry mm -hmm. is my art. I definitely see it as an art form. Um, I wouldn't say I am an artist in the sense of being able to pick up a paintbrush. I have not got that skill. I wish I did. I admire artists that are painters and sculptors and even digital artists I admire immensely because I feel I do not have that skill <laughs> at all. But saying that during the lockdown, here's me pushing myself out of my comfort zones, which is something I'm working on. I ordered a paint by number. So if anybody remembers in primary school where you'd get those pictures and it's all broken up with the numbers. Yeah, yeah, you match the numbers to the paint. I was like, you know what? I'll start off with something like that, guided through. Um, and it was a picture of a, a painting of a lion of a sheared. Um, and I found it really therapeutic, just mm -hmm. working my way through those sections and those colors. Um, just the stroke of the brush. I can see why artists and painters find their work um, so therapeutic because I, I definitely felt yeah. that. Um, but yeah, that I would say my main art form is definitely writing. Um, and as I define myself as a spoken word poet, what I'd also like to emphasize is that yes, I write my word, but I also speak my word. Um, and that is the difference perhaps between kind of more traditional poetry in the form of prose that is just meant to be read. Um, and then poetry like my own, which is definitely meant to be said out loud. Um, and it has the intention to be heard out loud. So even when I'm writing my poetry, I'm imagining how it would sound and I, I'm imagining how it would be performed um, even even where I would pause and where there'd be moments of kind of uh, reflection or emphasis through pausing. So it's definitely my art form to even perform it out loud as well. That's amazing. Expression is, is important for us in so many different ways. And what you were just talking about reminded me of something I've experienced with one of my sisters, Valerie Gore. Um, and she's she's also an activist and a speaker as well. And the first time I saw her on a stage and heard her, I was like completely hypnotized because she had such power and oh, just there was such fierceness in everything that she was saying. It was so precise, right? And it was poetic too, in some degree. Um, and when I, I was witnessing her going through her journey of writing her book, and it sounded exactly like that when she was writing it, she said, I want them to be able to hear my voice. Mm, yeah. Like, oh my God. Like, I, I'm that, the person who would just struggle writing a sentence. Yeah. So and that is so metaphorical. And I'm sure Valerie will understand what I mean by this. But when she was imagining writing it and wanting people to hear her voice, it is because our voice needs to be heard. Mm. So if you really even take away just that surface level of what she actually was saying by that, it is a metaphor for not for us feeling so unheard for so long and so muted for so long. Um, and that's why I, I used to say with my poetry, when people used to ask, what, what is it about? What are the themes? I remember I used to say, oh, it's a voice for the voiceless. Mm. Um, and I, I see a lot of activists use that phrase and people still yeah. do. But I've refrained myself from saying that anymore because what I realise is that we were never voiceless. We always had a voice. It was just that it was muted and it's been erased for so long. 
Um, so I, I really resonate with what Valerie said that she wanted people to hear her voice and mm. really hear it because it's been muted for, for far too long. Yes, but I, I think that's an incredible art in itself is mm -hmm. to be able to articulate your words in a way like speaking is one thing, right? Yeah. And to try to speak through written words and have yeah. somebody else hear that. And that mirrors for me like what Gurbani is. You know? Yeah. Like mm. as Guru's wrote in Guru Granth Sahib, it's like it's got the poetic intelligence and mm. just, oh my God, all of the rigor that's in there. Um, you've got the musicality. And then mm. you've got the expression in it as well. And it's like yeah. everything jumps out to you and it becomes relevant. And I think mm. that that's an important skill that as Sikhs, we, we need to try to learn. So yeah. I hope that we're going to be able to like learn this from you at some point as well, because we need it. <laughs> I mean, I, I absolutely. That, uh, what you just said there is when, when I get asked often in Q&As and stuff like that, what's my biggest inspiration? What inspires me the most? Or what is the first thing that inspires you? First and foremost, it's, it's our Barney. Our, our, our Barney is written in poetic form. And I, I feel like people forget that when they think that poetry in our community is something new. It's, it's not new. It's been within us since mm -hmm. we began. Um, and it flows in our blood. I really do believe that. So I feel we should be leaning into that. We should be leaning into poetry. We should be leaning into writing and leaning into art and to music because it's a part of who we are. It's a huge essence of what it means to be a Sikh. So I feel we definitely need to be leaning, leaning into that more. Absolutely. And we mm. see a lot of our kids, they're getting into different types of spoken word. Um, yeah. And like whether it's rap or writing lyrics for hip hop or writing lyrics for Punjabi song, we can mm. see that the poetry runs in our veins. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we've never had enough role models or guidance around us to help mm. us to direct it that how do you rhyme with your mm. words? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. How do you even get to that point? That's something that I would be interested in, but I wouldn't know where to start. Um, I think there's a reason for why I feel there's a revival of it happening now. Um, and that's definitely because if we think about our, our parents' generation or even our grandparents' generation, especially kind of first wave, second wave migrants that were moving here to the UK, for example, they their entire life at that point in time was about setting a foundation for their families um, and I'm, I'm speaking about my my granddad that for him coming here to the UK and coming to London was about setting a foundation for his family setting up a future for his family so there wasn't the time to reflect on these creative parts of our lives mm. maybe he could when he had the more kind of had the freedom of time later on in life but during that kind of key time during young adulthood they were right. they were they were hustling they, they were. So now our generation, I feel we do have the luxury because it is a luxury, it's a privilege to be able to study what we study and um, explore our passions of our arts. I feel our parents and our grandparents' generations couldn't. So there's been a gap, I feel, that's happened. It's definitely in us, it's in our blood, it's in who we are. And then unfortunately, it had to stop for a little while, but I feel there's a revival happening and, it, and it's growing. Um, and that's why I, I love to try and teach poetry now. So I run workshops. Um, I have been for the last three to four years, been running workshops across the UK, um, mainly in schools. So mainly with young people, especially in secondary schools. Um, but I also do run adult workshops as well. 
Um, and that was one of the things that definitely had to shift during lockdown for me, um, because usually these workshops would be face to face. I'd be going into schools, libraries, community spaces. Um, but obviously in March, that all fell fell shattering down. So I had to shift um, how I did that work. And um, my husband and I sat for a while and really planned what we would do and what we would shift. And the first thing I moved was some of my performances. I moved them to live um, performances on Instagram. Um, mm -hmm. And then the workshops, what my husband and I developed was online workshops, um, all focused on using writing for positive well-being. Because I was thinking on the one hand, everyone in lockdown may be suffering from um, mental health problems. Um, they're all at home, so it's not like they can go anywhere, so it would have to be online. Um, and they're thinking about a way to kind of merge those two together and create these online courses. Um, and for those first set of courses, I wanted to make sure that all the, the money going towards it would um, go towards charity, and it went towards the World Health Organization for their um, COVID response fund. Mm. And um, at first I was really nervous. I was like, is anyone going to sign up to them? Does anyone want this? Does anyone need this? And I did two different courses. One was called Poetry for Calm, which was learning about the skills of um, poetic devices and poetic writing. And the other one was Techniques of Journaling, which is another another um, skill that I've, I've developed over the years um, as a form of therapy. Um, and I was so shocked to see that loads of people signed up and it was such a blessing. We've just finished the first six weeks. Um, so that was the first cohort and I am having another one later in the summer. So uh, yeah, it ended up being such a blessing because I realized that at home, in fact, more people could access my workshops. Mm -hmm. Then being a person, you have to physically be able to go there, um, give up that time to commute to that particular place and all those sorts of things. So it may not be accessible for everybody. With it being online, what I found that a lot of mums were able to um, participate because they were at home and were able to kind of give that hour to it. Um, they were all recorded. So if you couldn't make, make the live guided sessions, you could catch up in your own time. So it was way more accessible for people and, and ended up being such a blessing. So something that I was actually very nervous about, very worried about, ended up being such a big blessing. That is amazing. And I'm so grateful. Excuse me. Sorry, the cold's getting to me, the British weather. It's like it's starting this, to kick in. <laughs> this British weather, in this last two weeks, we've had, so we've got an international audience, so our weather, guys, has been 30 degrees, 32 <laughs> degrees, about three days. That disappears, and now it's raining. It's freezing yeah. today. <laughs> As you can see, Fergie's got a on, yeah. <laughs> I'm wearing the kurti. <laughs> Yeah, we've had all four seasons in the last couple of weeks and I'm just like I don't understand what's going on so I'm sorry my, my throat's a little dodgy um but I I lost my trail of thought you have to forgive me <laughs> so I'm grateful for everything that you were just sharing um I yeah <laughs> totally, sorry, I've, I've totally um uh left you speechless I mean, it must have been yeah. a really good thing what well, I was just I've totally forgotten what I was saying as well. I was talking about the workshops I was talking about the online workshops thank um, you okay where can we where can we go to find out more about your workshops what is the website you can go to www.behindthenetro.com which is my website so you'll find 
all my some well, examples of poetry on there, videos on there, articles on there, and you'll also see a section on there that says workshops, um, and that's where you'll see the two courses that I've just provided, um, and you'll see upcoming dates um, for for upcoming workshops as well, um, and you'll keep kind of keep up to date on there. But I definitely recommend anyone who goes on the website sign up to my newsletter, so you'll be the first to know when anything's going to happen yeah. and when they're coming out. Okay. I'm going to go and sign up. <laughs> I want to learn how to to write poetically, you know. Mm. I want my expression to be more refined, and I think that we should all be trying to do this. Um, if we mm. want our voices to be amplified and heard and we want people to listen, um, mm. I think it's only, it's only right that we do the work as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, absolutely. That, I mean, th there are a lot of, like, other layers in there as well that, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've experienced this a lot. We actually talked about this a little bit um, when we were chatting earlier this week. Um, mm -hmm. We feel as brown women, we always have to do extra layers of work to be seen as equals or not even an equal, but just to be seen um, in the wider world, right? Where, mm -hmm. you know, other people may not have to do the same amount of work. Do you have yeah. any experiences that you'd like to share? I do, I do indeed. Um, yeah, I feel we did speak about this earlier this week, and it is that feeling that throughout my entire life, through school, through university, through the working world, I've always felt like I had to work twice as hard. Um, and what I mean by that is, as you've just said, to make sure that we are seen and recognized and appreciated, I've always felt like I've had to work twice as hard as perhaps my white counterparts in that same space. Academically, I felt like I had so much to prove. Um, personally, I felt like I've always had so much to prove to myself. Um, and yeah, I, I'd find, if I kind of just think of examples, throughout my young adult life and throughout my adult life, I've always made sure I'm early. I'm, I'm always making sure that I'm punctual mm. and I'm on time. And I don't know if that's a part of my psyche and it's part of the model minority complex. And, and what I mean by the model minority complex is that often Asian minorities are seen as the kind of mon model minority because they're always hardworking and they're always on time and they always get the job done. Um, mm. And unfortunately, that stereotype may have been something that's a self-fulfilling prophecy is that something that I've reinforced into my brain or been told so many times though so I behave that way but I also feel kind of another lens to apply to that is sometimes I do it intentionally because when I'm going to into different spaces and I'm going into white spaces I want to turn up and I want to turn up hard I want to turn up and in and and feel proud of who I am and everything that I've achieved. So I will always make sure that I've read up on whatever is going on in that space. So for example, if I'm gonna to go to a panel discussion or a debate or a media interview, I'll make sure I am prepared um, because it is a heavy weight to carry, but I do feel we have a lot to represent. We have our whole communities to perhaps represent. We have, as brown women, so much to represent. So it is a, a heavy burden and a heavy weight to carry sometimes, but I feel like I have to give it. Um, for example, being on, say, live TV recently um, over the last couple of weeks, um, when I show up for those talks and discussions and interviews, I'm always fully prepared um, for any 
argument or any debate um, and I've come with all the knowledge I know that I can bring um, so yeah it's, it's a heavy weight though it can be exhausting right and you were talking about our parents generation right and how hard they worked mm. um, like if we're feeling this burden right mm -hmm. they've already done a lot of the work for us to make mm. our lives easier to get to here like I can't mm. even imagine what they would have had to go through to fight the battles that they did at that time where the whole country was not supportive right yeah, yeah. I can even I was talking to my husband about this today and we were just reflecting on kind of the social and political issues that have been going on globally and the Black Lives Matter movement that's been going on globally and I was just thinking about kind of those experiences of the black community thinking about the experiences of our families and and immigrant families specifically here in the UK and I was my husband and I were talking about that we'll never fully understand what it feels like from our parents' perspective to have to live in such a physically violent state, to, right. to have physical violence being a threat to them on a daily basis. Leaving the house um, and feeling that kind of violence was traumatic. Um, and I do feel some of that trauma has passed on to us as their children. Um, there has been studies to prove that ancestral trauma is something that can be passed on from mm -hmm. grandparents to parents to grandchildren. It could even be that it's passed on two generations down. So if you think about our grandparents' generation, thinking about what they experienced, perhaps going through partition, um, and, then, and then different forms of genocide and persecution during the 80s, thinking about how much trauma of that may have even been passed on to us. Um, and and it, it's not all as wishy-washy as it sounds. There has been academic and scientific research that's been going on since about the 50s and 60s, really looking into this. Mm. Um, and originally it was applied to the Jewish community and they were looking at um, grandchildren of those that um, were killed or, or had been through um, the Holocaust. Um, they were looking at the grandchildren of those families to see if any significant trauma has been passed on through the generations. Mm. And what that would come out like in, in real terms is anxiety, is depression, um, and those things will surface in the children and the grandchildren. So if we apply that same theory to our community, the Sikh community, we have been through significant trauma in the last 50 years. Um, right. We have been through our own genocide in the last 50 years. Um, so I feel like our generation has this heavy weight that we're carrying, but we can be the generation of healing. We can be the generation that, that ends that trauma. I, I truly believe that. Um, whether that's before we have children, whether that's whilst we have children, doesn't really matter. But I feel that we can be the generation to now heal heal from everything that we've gone through but don't get me wrong we are still going through our own pain now and there's still significant trauma being applied to us now but we really need to think of the tools as a community to get through this together and to heal through this together so it doesn't pass on to our children and doesn't continue and continue right i i agree with you and i like the hope that you're bringing um intergenerational trauma is definitely real i don't mm. think that our community knows enough about it to know mm. how it works like mm. we have become so used to taking things in our stride and knowing that 
you know, these things have happened in our history. We almost disassociate from it. We take pride yeah. in knowing that that's our history. And, you know, we come from such, such great, rich bloodlines, right? But mm -hmm. we don't know how to connect that pain and that loss with who we are today, right? Mm -hmm. it's, been, it's been more than 50 years. If we look mm -hmm. into our history, yeah. it's like, you know, you're talking more than 150 years yeah. of mm -hmm. consistent oppression um, mm -hmm. through colonialism, through everything that we've endured from then. Um, mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's been a huge amount of things that as a community mm -hmm. we've been through and suffered. And hearing those stories from our parents or from our grandparents mm -hmm. or great grandparents, if anybody was that lucky, yeah. it can be really difficult, you know? I mean, mm -hmm. my mom was born in the 50s. Oh my God, that would have been embarrassing. I wouldn't have known when my mom was born. Mum um, <laughs> would not be happy with you if you'd forgotten when she was born and her birthday. <laughs> oh my God. Um, she was talking to me and my brother just a couple of weeks ago. Um, we were watching Ip Man. And uh, mm. there was this was when there was a war happening in China at that time. And that that mm. was the scene. And my mom, all of a sudden, that scene for her mm. reminded her when she was a child in Punjab. Mm. And, and there were she she was part of two attacks, not part of, I mean, I say mm. that terribly. I mean, she was, was there the and through this, right? Mm. Um mm when I think Pakistan attacked India and yeah. China attacked India. So she was a teen and mm. she said, I remember having to hide under a, uh, under a table when the, the planes would come and, you know, we were told to just like get as close to the floor and not move, don't put on any lights. And she was still trying to study for her exams at school. So she wrapped uh, a kapra around the light bulb um, and they yeah. didn't have light shades, they're in the yeah. bed. Yeah, um, yeah. And she didn't realize that the heat of the bulb would create oh, no. a fire. So she almost burnt down the house oh, no. because she was trying to study while yeah, there was an attack happening. And I was like, So you're not afraid for your life? She's like, No, I was afraid of failing my exam. I was like, so that's where I come yeah. from. <laughs> mm. And that's in you. That is in you. Right, but, but I mean, just for my mom to, like, for me to observe that that scene on the TV for her reminded her of that. And mm. how We can't relate to that, you yeah. know? I mean, I'm born in England. I, I, I haven't seen anything like that. So how could I possibly relate? The closest I get is the TV. Yeah, yeah. And this is why education is so key. Um, and this is perhaps one of the reasons I've become a teacher and love working with young people. And, and a lot of the work that I do is about access for education, because these th these stories, this, the, the stories of your, your parents, the stories of your mum, as well as the wider story of our community needs to be needs to be heard and needs to be understood for our generation, needs to be learned, needs to be researched as well. Um, I, I definitely feel our community needs to be encouraged to do more academic research, whether that's in a formal setting in the university or whether that's a personal thing that you try to do, needs to be encouraged as well because right. I don't want us to lose these stories. We need to, we need to hear them, document them, learn about them. Um, listen to our parents' stories because perhaps this is the first time she even shared that. Um, perhaps that's maybe even the first time she's even realised that those things have mm. happened. Um, mm. And imagine carrying all that alone, perhaps 
but for their whole lives. Having these conversations and, and letting these things out, I think can be a really important thing for our community, an intergenerational thing for our community um, to share with one another. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, we, like you said, we have the privilege of being able to seek therapy or to have mm -hmm. conversations and talk about things, but you know, that that's a generation where they were mm -hmm. almost trained to not mm. talk mm. yeah. 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 Mm. and they're masters of that especially the women you know mm. I mean they're they're incredibly strong women but yeah. I, I don't understand like I can't comprehend how you would house all of that within you and just operate as an independent silo that everything that mm. happened in my world is within me I will never speak it I will never tell anybody because apparently that is shameful right mm, yeah and then to carry all that and to have to migrate to a new country and mm. then do everything they had to do here learn yeah. the language learn the culture mm. yeah learn how to fit in right and our, our mm. the women and our community are and this is why shows like yours and, and doing core voices is so important that we talk about the women in our community and our stories um, and these stories are heard because like you said the women the sick women are are ugh, i can't even describe it i can't even say there's one word to encompass how magnificently powerful sick women are mm. um and you're right, a lot of our burdens and our problems and our struggles, we've had to bottle up inside ourselves. Um, and that's why sisterhood is so important. Having safe spaces are so important for, for brown women um, in, in, in the wider community as well, in the wider South Asian community, having these safe spaces for brown women are incredibly important. But I don't want to neglect safe spaces for brown men as well are definitely needed in our community and if anything because of the toxic toxic hyper masculinity in our community our men are suffering so that can't be ignored either um and there there's a huge area there i think we really need to be talking about and really need to tackle as well that the men in our community who may be suffering emotionally um suffering from mental health issues need support and perhaps they can't let it out, they can't speak about it, and are perhaps turning to other elements and turning to other things um, to reduce that pain. Um, sadly, in our community, we know alcohol and drugs are a huge concern, and alcoholism is a huge, huge problem in our community for, for the men in our community. So we need to be creating safe spaces for them as well. Um, and there's fantastic charities that are doing that, um, Daraki being one of them, one, one of the charities that I've supported recently, um, are doing amazing work to kind of tackle that stigma, especially for men. That's awesome. I'm grateful that you brought this up. Um, mm -hmm. And I mean, I've, I've had my own experiences with this because my dad, mm -hmm. you know, he, uh, he went through his own process of alcohol abuse. And now as uh, an adult woman, I can look back and I can connect the dots. But as a child, mm -hmm. I didn't understand it. So I'd like to ask you, what do you think are some of the factors that um, hold Punjabi and Sikh men back from talking openly about their mental wellness? Mm. I think there's. it starts from very young. Mm -hmm. I think the way that we socialise both boys and girls from a very young age um, in our community is, is definitely problematic. Obviously, starting even before we are born, 
there is an ongoing sun preference in our community. And what people do not recognize is that sun preference and, and patriarchy, you know, hence why I'm wearing this t-shirt, it says, smile for the destruction of patriarchy. Um, patriarchy <laughs> kills us all. Patriarchy <laughs> impacts us all. Um, and what I mean by that is patriarchy, sun preference, can impact us all in the sense that, of course, it impacts impacts us, us women um, because we are treated so differently throughout our lives. But what that also perpetuates is that when we do have sons, we put so much pressure on them to be this magnificent golden child. Um, even how we socialize our girls and boys, we tell our boys to grow out, be confident, be brave, be strong, don't cry. We tell girls on the other hand to grow inwards, to be quiet, to be submissive, to be inferior. Mm. Um, and we teach that to them from such a young age, um, even the language that we use around them, the way we speak to them. Um, and that goes on throughout their childhood, throughout their teenage years. And it's around teenagehood that I feel that these problems start surfacing a lot more for young for young men. Um, that's when perhaps some problems start to arise. And then definitely when they end up towards adulthood, when there's other pressures, life pressures that come in, stuff to do with finances, having to pay the bills, having to look after the family because they're told to be the breadwinner and all those kind of societal pressures that are being applied to them, I think in their adulthood then starts to get really difficult. And that's why the suicide rates for people, uh, for, for men um, around the age of 40 are so high in our community, because I think that's when a lot of it, once it's been bottled in for so long, can only go one way. Um, and yeah, I think that's my explanation for it. Obviously, every, everyone's experiences are completely different. Um, and I wouldn't like to generalize that that's everybody's experience. Um, but from what I've seen personally, um, with the men that I know have suffered from mental health problems in this way, they've described it in that sense that their whole life, they've had to bottle it up so much. And when they get into their adulthood, and when there's so many pressures at that point for men, that's, that's when it gets too much. Right. And what advice would you give to anybody, male or female, who might be feeling that way? Please speak to someone. Please speak to someone, whether that's in your family, whether that's a close friend, or whether that's speaking to the services that we have here in the UK and perhaps in your own countries, the mental health services that you have access to. And they're usually free phone numbers that you can find online and to speak to someone because there is someone there to listen. And the moment that problem is shared, the saying is the problem's halved, but I don't know if people fully believe that, but I do feel the moment you release it from yourself is the first step for things to get better. I truly believe that holding this in alone by yourself is, is too difficult. So speaking to someone um, and finding that safe someone and finding those safe spaces because mm. I feel they are starting to appear now. So have a look online, they are there. Um, whether that's a community group, whether that's one-to-one -one support, whether that's finding access for therapy, or whether, like going back to the start of our conversation, it's finding another outlet, be it art, be it music, be it poetry, be it dance, finding the outlet, it's there, it right. is there. Absolutely, and on corevoices.org, there are resources where you can find professionals who are out there. If you want to learn about how to journal, 
and use your expression poetically, go and check out behindthenetra.com. And if you want music therapy, come to me. I got you. <laughs> so we're here as community and we couldn't show up this way, you know, in, in the past generation, but this is the luxury we have now. This is the responsibility we have now, not even the luxury. Mm -hmm. This is our responsibility. As you said, we're the generation that can step in to support, create community and try to advocate healing. And mm -hmm. you've already begun that work through what you're doing. I don't know if our audience is familiar with your TED talk, but I'd love for you to share about it because it's titled, How Poetry Saved Your Life. Mm. I definitely re recommend that, that people watch it because I feel like I can never do it justice, but I will explain the title of it. Um, How Poetry Saved My Life is a, a fact for me. Um, growing up, I'd say around the age of about 13, um, 12 or 13, was when I first started suffering from anxiety attacks. Um, and at that point, I had no idea what they were. Um, I'd never even really heard of what an anxiety attack was. And the closest thing I could refer it to was perhaps having a heart attack. Um, and I even thought when I was having my first anxiety attack that that's what was happening to me. I thought I was dying. Um, and that's what a lot of those attacks felt like. Those panic attacks felt like I was dying. My chest would tighten in. I couldn't breathe. Um, I'd get cold, cold sweats all over my body. And in that moment, you feel so lost and, and so confused and so alone. Um, but I was so scared to speak to anybody about it. Um, I couldn't speak to my friends about it. I was getting bullied in school at that point. I was too scared to speak to anybody at home about it. Um, and the reason why I was so scared is because growing up, all you hear is such negative things attached to mental health. You would hear how people would use certain language about people in the community, their father, they're crazy, they'll never get married, um, was one that I, I you would hear a lot. They're possessed, yeah, they've got nuzzard on them, they've got black magic on them, um, and that's the kind of stuff that you would hear, or you'd hear about, oh, this crazy person is kept at home and is never allowed to go out, and oh, that that terrified me, I was terrified to speak to anybody about it, um, and I had really positive relationships with people in my family, so I could have spoken to them at the time, but was so terrified, terrified to speak to my GP, because it was a family GP, and I was scared he would tell everybody in the family, and the community would find out so for years I had all of this bottled in um which then even escalated to around the age of 18 when I was in university which was a really difficult time um was when I was going through depression um so at that point it started to get even worse but throughout this whole time the only outlet I had was to write um, and originally it started off as like this journal where I would just let out all these emotions I was feeling in my head, all this kind of chaos I was feeling in my head. I just write it out, write, 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 write. And before I knew it, what I was actually writing was poems. Um, and I didn't know they were poems at first. Um, and I still have all of them written in a journal um, and have collated them over the years. And even as you read the poetry, you see the journey of recovery um, hence why one of my poems um, is called Recovery, because I feel like that's what it held, helped me do. It was my form of therapy, um, and I felt like it, it, it did save my life. Without it, I don't know what I would have done, um, especially in those really dark days, those days that I couldn't even get myself out of bed. 
let alone get out of the house. Um, there were days like that. And if I didn't have poetry, I don't know. Um, so that that's why I say poetry saved my life. And what I emphasize in the TED talk is also the fact that there's been research by the Arts and Wellbeing Foundation that found that when they tested poetry on, on people that had different forms of mental health problems, they found that for the majority of the people in that research, it made them feel calmer, it made them feel like they could manage their depression, um, and over a six-week period, they all felt more content. So it was proven that poetry actually helped all of them. And not only that, but it will save the NHS around £200,000 a year. So if we tap into these resources, not only are we going to be helping thousands and thousands of people, but we'll also be saving the NHS as well. So there's a double benefit. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I relate quite deeply in some ways to what you just shared. I want to firstly say thank you for being so brave to share that with us. Um, and also putting that out there in the world. It's not easy to talk about these things. And as we've just unveiled, you know, unfortunately, we haven't had the support in our community or we don't have the infrastructure to feel safe mm. to talk about mm. these things. And this is why we want, we, we want to have spaces like Core Voices where we can actually talk. Um, and just even, it's not always to find a solution. It's just to have a conversation and say, hey, you know, you're not alone. Um, I suffered with my first anxiety attack um, when I was in my late 20s. Um, I'm giving away my age now. I'm going to pretend I'm 21. <laughs> and that's everything you described is exactly how it felt. Mm. And I had no idea what was going on. Um, I actually thought it was a heart attack. That's what I thought mm. was happening. Um, and it wasn't until the paramedics came and said, it's just just yeah. a panic attack and I was like yeah, yeah you could oh. just like brush it off but yeah for me mm. I just like what do I do with this now and yeah. the only thing that they could give to me was medication mm. and um they were quite surprised this was the scariest part of it mm -hmm. they were quite surprised that I'm not already on antidepressants right and there were three paramedics in the the van the ambulance right um and my friend was with me, sitting next to me as we're parked outside my house and they're, they're mm -hmm. checking checking my everything that I'm okay. And yeah. he looked at me stunned and said, you're the only person, this is the, the paramedic who's checking my blood pressure and all of the rest of it said to me, you're the only person that I know who is not on antidepressants. All of us, we're all on antidepressants. Mm -hmm. And I was like, whoa. It's shocking. Mm -hmm. so, that was like the, major. There is a big, yeah. There's a big question here whether here in the UK and perhaps globally people are being pushed towards medication too quickly. Um, and there has e even been research done specifically for Asian women that Asian women are over prescribed um, medication for mental health problems and antidepressants. Um, it's one of the first things we are provided. Um, rather than other services, which is it makes no sense to me. This is not me saying that antidepressants or, or medication is a bad thing. I do not want to stigmatize medication because I know 
people people that I know personally that it helped them so so much on their journey to to managing their mental health so there is a space for medication um when when that point arises but for it to be the first port of call is really problematic especially for Asian women that we are being medicated um, rather be, than being provided other support um, it seemed to be a quick fix that is provided specifically for Asian women yes. um, so that is probably why you got that reaction um, that they were surprised that you weren't on it already. Wow okay that makes more sense because mm. for me honestly I mean I'm not against medication, you know, mm -hmm. it serves you and you need it, don't yeah. stay away from it. But I didn't feel that I needed that. And that mm -hmm. was where it came from. It wasn't a point of denial. I knew that yeah. there was something out of balance, but was a pill mm -hmm. going to fix it for me? That's mm -hmm. what I didn't believe in. And yeah. um, for me, like we were talking about arts and how we, we both connect with different forms of artistic and creative expression and they've helped us individually in our journeys mm -hmm. mine is sick music mm -hmm. and I was already on that path for about mm -hmm. 10 years at that point Hannah yeah. um, so many people judged me so mm -hmm. hard that oh aren't you supposed to have this under your wing aren't you supposed to have this mm -hmm. master that had to deal with your emotions mm -hmm. and I'm like really this is how mm -hmm. we show up as a community mm -hmm. is saying what can I do how yeah. can I support you? It's mm. first we shame them even more. And that was mm. how I felt. And it was a lot of people in my, like not inner circle because I wouldn't put those people there, yeah. but on the yeah. outer circles who can see us um, mm -hmm. and they put us on these pedestals mm -hmm. and all of a sudden we're supposed to be superheroes and be completely flawless, completely yeah. perfect. Bulletproof, but yeah, yeah. That's mm. what they're used to seeing. This is the problem, right? The people who came before us wore the masks so well, mm. they never showed their human side. Yeah, and we're, the mm. we're talking about these things and showing that, hang on, this is our human yeah. side and we got flaws as well. Yeah. And um, it's an ongoing process. And that's why I, 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 I do share my mental health journey online and I do share it with my audience because I want them to see that vulnerability in me and, and for them to connect to that and say, okay, I'm not alone in this. Hmm. I, I'm not the only one feeling this way. And that it is a continuous journey, is a continuous journey of managing, hmm. whether it's depression or whether it's anxiety. It's not a switch. It doesn't turn off. It doesn't disappear. It doesn't go with the pop of a pill. It doesn't go once you start therapy and then, oh, click, it's gone forever. Mm -hmm. It's an ongoing process. And that's why we need to change the language when we're talking about mental health because. When we talk about our physical health, when we talk about physical fitness, we put quite a positive lens on it. We think about working out. We think about having a healthy, um, balanced, nutritious diet. We think about what nourishes us. But when we talk about mental health, we're always looking at it in such a ne negative lens. And if all of us were to realise that, okay, mental health isn't something that affects one in three people. Mental health is something that affects one in one people. It affects all of us. Mm -hmm. So finding tools to help us look after our well-being in the same that you, way that you look after your physical health is the way that you should be looking after your mental health. If you've got a gym subscription that you're paying £500 a year for, you should have something that you're looking after your mental health for. Not paying, you don't necessarily have to pay that much. You know, you guys know what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> In the same way we look after our physical health and our body, we need to be looking after our mind. 
So finding tools, finding that gym for your mind, whether it's art, whether it's therapy, whether it's all the things that we've been speaking about, treat it in that same way. Mm. We shouldn't be treating our bodies in such a way, so we shouldn't be treating our minds in such a way. Mm. But how do we counteract that the judgment that comes to us when we are brave enough to step into the space and say, okay, I need help, right? Mm -hmm. Often we're not met with the support that we need that helps us to Mm -hmm. get help and we're still in the silo, we're still isolated. What do we do there? This is why it needs to be a community-led thing. It can't be an individual thing. This is why we need to be shifting the entire narrative for the whole community so that if it is a a mum or a dad who has a child that is suffering, they know how they can support. Or if they don't know how to personally support, they know where they can turn to to help their child. Or vice versa, if it is a child that sees their parents suffering, as a child to have to manage that is so difficult. To have to be a carer as a child is so difficult. So them knowing where can they look for support as well is really important. That's why it's a community thing that we need to be working on together um but if you are an individual that is feeling like you have no one in your personal kind of center to speak to then definitely turn to some because they feel they may be judged then definitely turn to some of these other charities or community spaces that are out there because you you will not be judged there you will be in a safe space there and you won't be alone there Mm. Um, if you want a female specific space, then look for that because I feel for, for women, that is quite an important thing to, to look for a sisterhood and a safe sisterhood space mm-hmm. um, and vice versa for men. If you feel that it's it's more helpful to be in a space with other men to speak about those specific issues, I can mm-hmm. understand that too. So yeah, you're not alone. You're not alone in this. If you're able to share and please don't feel obliged to, how did you take your first step to seek help? I think outside of just the therapy, the moment that I thought it was time to look for more support um, was actually when I was at university. And unfortunately that experience didn't go very well. So it wasn't the best first step. Um, I approached a counseling service at my university because I thought, couldn't speak to my family GP and and all that sort of stuff like I explained before so I approached a counselling service at my university and this is where the problem arises of having therapists that aren't racially haven't haven't got the right racial literacy Um, and what I mean by that is the counsellor that I spoke to was a middle-aged white woman and I felt she didn't understand the cultural context in which I was coming from Um, she assumed a lot about me before Mm. I even spoke there was a lot of assumptions that I think that she made about me being a young Asian woman so I felt that her help was not the best place to start so unfortunately that first experience wasn't great so that's why having somebody that is perhaps on the same culture same background is Mm. totally okay to ask for and there are amazing services and amazing brown therapists out there that may be more culturally understanding of your circumstances. So I'll give you an example of what this counsellor once said to me. So I was explaining to her a lot of my worries and concerns at that point, a lot of things that were 
kind of um, expected for most most young adults at that time, but also speaking about kind of wider issues as well. And one of the things she recommended was to move out of my family home, get my own place and become more independent was what I was told. Oh, wow. um, and I was like, this woman's not getting it at all. She's not, not of course I don't want to do that. My, my family, a huge part of my life and a huge part of my decision-making process as well. Mm -hmm. So I felt like she didn't understand the cultural context of where I was coming from and how in fact mm -hmm. my family are a big part of my support system. To remove myself from that would make me worse. Um, and this idea of what independent meant, especially from a white lens, is very problematic. Um, this kind of very individualistic, sense of what independence means um, in the Western world is something very different to what I feel independence means um, and what self-autonomy actually feels like for me and that doesn't mean leaving my family so I felt like she really didn't understand it so unfortunately that first step was not not the best mm. what I realized from that experience is that if I did look for therapy again, I would want someone who understands my cultural context. Um, I would prefer it to be a woman just because I felt felt safer. And I would prefer if it's someone from either um, an Asian background or even a black woman, I feel would perhaps understand my cultural context a little bit more. Um, and that's not to say that white therapists can't. This is saying that therapy in general and those services really need to pick up on their cultural literacy so that they can understand all these nuances. Yeah. And I feel there's no excuse anymore. I feel like these services in the mental health space, as well as in education and these other institution, institutions have no excuse anymore for this kind of ignorance. I feel we have a world wide web. We have information at our fingertips. We have all this data showing us these things. So to to play dumb isn't enough anymore. Right. Um, but after that, I then did seek therapy in other places, um, which were a lot better. I started something called cognitive behavior therapy, mm. which is a little bit different from talking therapy. CBT um, gets you to really analyze your thought processes and your behaviors um, and you look at the cycle of your thought process and your behaviors and why you might have a chain of worries which is something that I suffer from I catastrophize quite a lot so if I've got a worry in my head what will happen is I have this worry chain so something quite small could turn into the most catastrophic thing in my head like the world is going to end mm. and in that moment in that worry chain it's very hard to stop that process mm. and it all happens very very quickly and could lead to an anxiety attack so what I had to learn was how do I stop that thought process before it gets from here to here um, and that's what CBT actually taught me how to do how to really stop some of my thoughts control my thoughts the ones that I need to reflect on I will but the ones that are ones that I can put to the side because you kind of you start to differentiate what's a potential worry and what's an actual real worry for mm. example a real worry would be if your car breaks down and you need to get off onto the side of the road that's a real worry in that very time a potential worry is one that might happen in the future isn't definite and I realize a lot of my anxiety I and mean, a lot of my worries are potential worries they actually weren't um, weren't immediate worries, if that makes sense. Right. Um, so 
EBT really helps you differentiate the difference between all those thoughts in your head. And a lot of them can feel really messy and chaotic. So cognitive behavior therapy really gets you to kind of clear that all up. And I feel that's where, alongside poetry, the biggest shift started to happen. So cognitive behavior therapy is definitely something I'd recommend. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And when you started to use your voice to speak and came more into your space of poetry to help you get your power back um, and use it therapeutically for yourself, how did your your loved ones, your family and your friends, how did they respond to that? Mm. So it was only not too long ago that obviously I started to speak about these things publicly back in 2015 was kind of the start of the Behind the Nedra journey. So me becoming a spoken word poet, doing shows, um, doing open mic nights. Um, mm. So that was when the Behind the Nedra journey first started. And at that point, I was still quite nervous about speaking about my mental health journey. But the Behind the Nedra journey, the poetry journey started uh, at an event in Hounslow in West London from Mike anyone remembers it that was my first show (laughs) um was my first show and I was actually speaking about the ongoing sun preference in our community a very taboo topic um I was actually specifically talking about female infanticide and female feticide in Punjab and why this ongoing sun preference is still going on in our community so very Mm. taboo topic um, and I got such an amazing response from the audience um, a recording of that performance went viral. And that's when I really saw that poetry can be such an accessible way to talk about these taboo topics and to talk about these really hard issues. And what I realized is that that was synonymous with how I could talk about mental health. And in that moment, I thought if, if I could talk about these taboo topics, about some preference and gender inequality, then maybe I can use it for mental health, too. Um, And that's when I started sharing some of those mental health poems. Like I said, I've had so many written over the years and started sharing them and sharing them with my friends and family and showing them to to the people that I love and took them on that journey with me. Um, But it is a hard journey Um, to have to hear that your loved one's been through pain is not easy, Um, but it's an ongoing journey. We're all learning. Um, I'm still learning, my friends are still learning, my family is still learning. It's an ongoing journey, it's an ongoing process, but I'm glad they're on it with me now and I don't feel alone anymore. Oh, that's that's beautiful. I'm glad that they're, they're with you and you have that support. It's, it is really important to have that support. Um, there's one of the comments that I was just reading from Jasmine Anand. She said, I've realised that um, a lot of the elders in our community are less supportive because they don't want to be seen with anyone who has mental health issues. Uh, and you know, we do suffer with that in our community that what will people say yeah. And that's a huge that's that's the perhaps one of the leading issues here. That phrase about what are people going to say comes up in so many spaces for us, whether it's mental health, whether it's relationships, whether it's um, career prospects, everything that we're doing is our decision-making process seems to surround and is focused on what are other people going to say. And you know what? Other people aren't you. It isn't your life and your happiness and your family. I feel that if we focus on our own 
families, our own units, mm -hmm. and the happiness of our own family and unit, making sure that we're installing the right values in our families, making sure that our well-being is looked after as well as our physical health in our own families. We'd all be so much happier. We'd all be so much happier because we wouldn't be worrying about every other person. And you know what? Every other person is also worrying about every other person. So everybody is just thinking about what everybody else is thinking. So it's just this ridiculous circle cycle right. that we seem to be continuously allowing ourselves to, to stay in. Mm. But I feel I have hope in our generation. I have hope in the future generations. I have hope in the, with the children that I work with and the young people that I work with, especially in the secondary schools that I work with. These kids really do inspire me and they give me hope for the future because when I talk to them and when they talk about mental health or when they talk about these taboo subjects, nothing holds that stigma anymore. Mm. They won't allow it to be that way. They will not put up with inequality anymore. They will not put up with injustice anymore. These, these kids are ready to fight. Um, and I find it really empowering being around them. Um, so I definitely feel a shift is happening that hopefully we will never say to our children, what, what will people say? I, I hope I'll never say that phrase to my child. I, I will make sure that you don't. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to send them to you. I'm going to say, you can go to Musty. If I ever say that, but I think um, to to Jasmine, I think one thing that I would like to say is that sorry, I'm about to cough. Sorry. Sorry. I saw you drinking and it's like almost like my body was saying, give me some. I'll be okay. But um I think with our older generations, um they never had the opportunity to talk about it. Mm -hmm. um, they had to constantly stay tough, especially mm -hmm. the men. Mm -hmm. They had to keep the thick outer, outer shell, not just to maintain their image and their it in people's mm -hmm. eyes because they are the representative of their family if they're male, right? Mm -hmm. They represent mm -hmm. not themselves but their father and their family mm -hmm. where they come from. They carry mm -hmm. the family name. So... They have to now also, if they've moved to a foreign country, survive in that country, mm. be try not to be seen less than. So whatever the standard was, which was not coloured, mm. you have to be seen equal or you have to try to keep fighting mm. that. Say, hey, we matter too. Our voices matter too. We can wear yeah. turbans as well. It's part of our identity. We should be allowed to wear beards and drive buses mm. and drive taxis and serve, yeah. right? Yeah, um, yeah. There was a lot that they had to go through and they didn't have the resources we have now, which is why we still may face their um, negativity towards it if we're talking about our mental health because it can be triggering for them in a way that they're yeah. not ready or able to talk about. So I think mm -hmm. it's a mutual understanding that we have to develop. We can't just go and throw a strop and say, hey, this is how I feel and as my parent, you have to deal with it. We have to be equally understanding to know that if there's resistance it's not because they don't love us it's yeah. that they don't know how to deal with their own issues as well yeah, yeah. there's there's we'll talk about the book in a moment but there is a line in my book that I've written specifically on a chapter thinking about mental health is when you're raising your children from a place of thinking about their survival and if that's all you can think about how how do I get us to survive how can I make sure we're surviving mm. 
you're not raising them in a place of getting them to thrive. So you're focusing on getting them to survive, not necessarily to thrive. So it's all about safety. It's all about keeping up appearances. It's all about keeping everything ticking over and nothing outside of that. Right. We can now be looking at how do we thrive now? We've, we've been surviving and we can continue surviving. We need to look at how can we thrive now? So how do you love and how do you raise a family from a place of wanting them to thrive rather than just a place of wanting them to survive? So you're absolutely right. I'm so glad you've mentioned that whenever you may be feeling that animosity from your families or your loved ones, that they're just not getting it or they are saying things like what are people going to say, think about the context that they're perhaps coming from. And please don't let that make you get filled with so much hate for them because that won't help you on your journey either. Try and understand the context that they are coming from. If you are in a place of danger and it's too much, of course, that's a complete different situation. Yeah. You may need to remove yourself from that situation. But if it is a place that you can try and develop it through communication over time, then please try, please try. Yeah, I definitely second what you just said just brief because as you said if we're that generation of healing we have to know how to model and give compassion as well if we want to receive it and mm -hmm. anybody that meets us with animosity or aggression is because they're hurting right we've mm -hmm. all heard that saying hurt people hurt people yeah. Yeah. Um, and mm -hmm. that's the most obvious way to look at anybody who's aggressive is that deep down inside they're hurting and mm -hmm. um Nobody wants right. to be hurting. Yeah. If we try to mm -hmm. tap into those teachings of Guru Nanak and we're coming from that place of oneness and love, then we've got a chance of doing something different, something that the people before us were not able to do because they didn't have the tools or the support. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I hope, I hope that's been helpful. I hope anybody that's been listening, um, that some of those things are helpful. Yeah. And for you, Jasper, I want to ask, um, you talked, you mentioned that in your spoken word poetry, you address taboo topics, mm -hmm. right? And that can't have been easy to come forward and not just use your voice, but use your poetic voice as an activist, as a tool for activism, actually, right? Mm -hmm. um, were you met with any aggression animosity or negativity and would you like to share that with us yeah i guess there's there's the famous saying and phrases that if you're trying to do anything right um, and if you're trying to do anything good there will be people that hate you too and there will be people trying to stop you too mm. um and i think that goes for any work um that is for trying to make significant change socially um economically politically i feel you will always face barriers along the way um, and there has been there's been animosity and, and anger shown to me online mostly um there hasn't thankfully been anything so much physically in person but a lot of that that negativity and hate does come online um i get messages a lot of the time from from people that aren't happy about me being outspoken aren't happy about me being a woman that is quite outspoken especially as a brown woman people would prefer that i say seen and not heard mm. um and uh, i have received 
death threats, rape threats, really horrible, horrible messages from time to time. And um, those people who don't agree with some of my viewpoints, and that's okay too. If there's ever people that disagree or wish for an open, healthy debate, I'm all for it. But if you're showing anger and aggression and, and disgusting amounts of hate, I have no time for it. Um, mm. But I remember when I first started this journey and start, started first seeing some of those messages online, it really would impact me. I couldn't sleep. There would be nights that I'd be up in sweats because I'd be so distraught by those messages. But I realized that I have a choice here. I either let myself be impacted by those messages mm -hmm. and that impacts my work impacts the way that I help people or I have to just completely ignore it um, and do the safe things of blocking deleting um, and ignoring it if it's a place for healthy debates and, and a chance for education I will do that but if it's a it's coming from a place that is just not healthy then I will block and delete it um but yeah it's not it doesn't surprise me that there are people online that do not want to see a brown woman being outspoken about these issues especially t taboo topics especially calling things out in our community that I feel mm -hmm. need to be called out because they're not acceptable mm -hmm. um people don't like that um and I feel I have a love-hate relationship with social media. Uh, and what I mean by that is I love it because I feel it can be a voice to talk about these topics. I can engage with an audience globally or around the world. We can do things like this. Mm -hmm. um, so it does have a, a lot of positivity in that sense. But I have the hate relationship with it because I do feel it can be very unhealthy for people. And it also allows people to be keyboard warriors. It allows anybody with a device to say whatever they want, not caring about how it might impact the other person on the other side of the screen. Um, and it gives you a lot of the things I receive would never be said to me in person. They'd never be say, said to my face, but they can be sent as a message. Um, so I do have this love hate relationship with social media. Um, because of those reasons. Right, and that's natural to have that. I mean, everything you've said is valid. Mm. And yes, we have a lot of the keyboard warriors who are just writing empty things and they wouldn't mm. want those things said to them. They wouldn't say it to your face, but nonetheless, they're mm. still saying it. Um, yeah. One question that has been asked is, is the negativity by our community? And I think that means the Punjabi community yes it has been it's been from wider than that as well but there has been negativity from from our Punjabi community um mm. mainly from men um again mm. that may be associated to the fact that they don't want a woman being so outspoken about these things again this is why we need to destroy patriarchy because of reasons like this mm. um so it has been from our community um but it's been outside of that too um i would say outside of our demographic um, there's been kind of racism as well, um, which is thrown in there. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's come, it's come some from our community, but this is why I'll continue to go on to educate because that's the best thing I can do for our community that I try my best to educate people on, on these taboo topics. Right. Um, and I'll try and do it in the best way that I can. I'll do it through poetry that's hopefully accessible, but I do it as a teacher. Um, I do it through public speaking. I do it through doing talks like this and, and lots of panel discussions um, and trying to reach as many demographics as I can. So the older generation, as well as the young, younger generation, that's the best way I can tackle it for our community. Mm. Okay, firstly, thank you for sharing that. 
I'm sorry that you've had to deal mm. with this. I'm sorry mm -hmm. that, you know, you've had to go through that. You said death threats, you said mm. rape threats, and that is disgusting. Mm. That there are men out there who would have the audacity to say that to a fellow sick sister instead mm. of standing in your corner to support you and being an ally and helping to amplify your voice they become our own community becomes the one mm. to want to silence us that is hurtful that is not okay and mm. in this space we don't support that i want you to know that i'm sorry that you had to go through that um and it's only by doing this, what you did right now, talking about it, mm -hmm. telling us and letting all of our other brothers out there know that this is happening. So yeah. if you support a cause, you need to be vocal about it. You mm -hmm. need to tell us that you support us so we know that we can rely on you when we need you. Right. And that's what being an ally is. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of talk going on recently about what allyship is, um, definitely in light of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, how do you be an ally in these spaces? How can you be an ally for the black community? Or even what we're speaking about right now, how can you be an ally for your six sisters um, or to other women in general? Um, and that is by being there, by being there and listening and learning and providing safe spaces for us, not ones that come from places of anger and animosity and, and these horrible messages. We don't need that. We need some more support um, and we do need that allyship um, from from the male members of our community. Um, and I want to say that there is that there is amazing allyship from a lot of men in our community. Um, and my husband being one of them, obviously he is my life partner, so I would hope he'd be my ally. But <laughs> even before all of that, and even outside of our relationship, I can see that he's truly an ally for feminist causes because he lives it. He lives it day in day out. Um, so yeah, being there, showing up, it's mm. is really important, um, sure. and and being vocal about it, like you said, um, standing up for things when they're not right, and especially kind of in your friendship circles and your families, if you're seeing and hearing conversations that aren't right, if you're hearing someone saying something very sexist, misogynistic, racist, call it out. It's our responsibility to do that with our friends and our families, and doing doing it in those spaces is hard um but my dad always used to have this phrase and I never used to understand it growing up but I definitely understand it now my dad used to have this saying called um you've probably heard it before but charity starts at home mm. and I never used to understand what that meant I'm like what does he mean charity starts at home do I do charity at home what does that mean <laughs> but what I understand by that now is that before you can go out and help the world and do your server outside outwardly for our communities and all these spaces and all these things can you do it in your own home first that is one of the most important places to start mm -hmm. so having these difficult conversations with our families will make a huge difference before we can even then go out and do it in wider society so mm -hmm. calling out these things so being a good ally is doing that is having these difficult conversations i call them and I call them this in the book, um, awkward dinner table conversations. Um, so that is when you guys are perhaps sitting around the dinner table, having roti, or you just sat down for a cup of jar, someone said something that isn't quite quite right, and you talk about it. You, you talk about why that isn't right anymore, or we can't say that anymore, or you can't feel that way, or that's not fair. Mm. And having those awkward conversations will be a place for growth. Absolutely. It will be.
absolutely and i think we just we need to hear more of the the support instead of just receiving the negative comments mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. um and you're not the only sick sister to say that to me i mean i receive enough hate in my mm. social media dms um mm. and mostly from punjabi men that either want to mm. marry you or they don't like <laughs> the fact that you don't want to marry them and they're surprised <laughs> as to why you're saying no to them you know mm. like who wouldn't want to say yes to a social media proposal to somebody you've never met right <laughs> so a lot of it's ridiculous and that's mm. all you're hearing from them you kind of start to lose a little bit of faith in the support mm. system in our wider community so i'm asking the sikh brothers to step forward and actively be seen as supporting your sisters use your voices stand for our causes we're going to stand in your corner too that's how this works right but we need to hear you we need to see you and we've got one of our brothers he's showing his love already which is great thank you triple s <laughs> for doing that um, <laughs> it's i just i'm like there's so much around this topic which is like it's not okay um and we don't get to talk about it so much and it's become mm-hmm. normalized in a way that okay mm-hmm. we just have to deal with it and if as punjabi sick women we want to come forward and we want to talk about things that are uncomfortable we get labeled very ugly labels just because mm-hmm. we're showing courage to not be made uncomfortable by these topics right mm-hmm. um and i i don't think that those labels are fitting because sick women were known to be courageous were known yeah. to stand in the face of injustices and fight mm-hmm. those battles so yeah. we're just doing what's in our blood and if you don't exactly. like it you have to think about why that makes you uncomfortable <laughs> right yeah and that's more a reflection on your own masculinity than it is on on us mm-hmm. and that's what it is like we said anyone who's giving hatred or being mean or bullying or being hateful any of those things is always there's something going on with them personally that they want to reflect that hatred onto somebody else for some reason um so look inwards before you come to attack us because there's definitely something going on there that's making you feel so unhappy about us being outspoken um so reflect on that look inwards um but yeah us we do need to be allies for our sisters we need to turn up and this is a wider conversation i think for our community as a whole the punjabi sikh community that we need to be supporting not only our sisters but also our brothers as well we need to be supporting each other on our journeys we need to be supporting one another not only emotionally perhaps even financially if somebody's written a book and they're selling their book buy five copies of their book if somebody is an artist and they're selling their artwork buy five pieces of their artwork be there for our community put mm. your money where your mouth is now we've seen enough of people I, I, we've got the social media support we've got people saying i like this person this person we now need people really showing their allyship and really showing their support when they need it are you supporting businesses with our community supporting people on their on their business adventures or their their other projects or endeavors um it may not even be financially it may be that they need backing on something and they need more supporters on something they need people to sign a petition and right. um, they need you to actively do something we need to be there now for our community um and that is sometimes doing things like paying for something like showing up somewhere like turning up for their show like buying a ticket for their event 
this is now the next stage of showing our allyship. We need to be there now. I like that. And, and I agree with that, mm -hmm. that that's how it has to look um, as we move mm -hmm. forward with it. Um, mm -hmm. In your work in activism, what area, is there one area that you're more passionate about? Or which areas wow. are there that you're passionate about? You know, oh, that's so hard. I've never been asked that question before. <laughs> you know what? I, I, don't, I can't say there's one area that's more, uh, holds more weight than others because they all do, they all do. What I would like to say is that even that word activism and activist is something I've been thinking a lot about recently. And it, it's a big label. It's a big, um, big weight to carry. And I feel, I don't know if this is right or wrong. It's something I'm still trying to understand. But when I look at activists that I admire and have looked up to historically throughout history, when I think of an activist, I think of somebody that really lives what they're fighting for. Mm. They live it day in, day out. They sleep it. That is their thought every single day. It's not just a job. It doesn't go Monday to Friday. It's not nine to five. The activists that I've always looked up to and hopefully what I feel that I'm trying to fulfill is that this is now my life. <laughs> mm. um, this is the server that I'm here for. This is my purpose. So every day, as long as I'm fighting towards all those different things, whether it's gender inequality, whether it's mental health stigma, whether it's education, uh, whether it's tackling racial issues, as long as I'm still living that every day, then I feel like I can call myself an activist um, mm. and I can call it activism. Um, and I feel that's something quite important nowadays, especially with social media. It's very easy to jump onto things whilst they're trending and jumping onto the bandwagon whilst it's the hashtag. And we see that happen a lot. Mm -hmm. But are we living this? Are we living this day in, day out? And I'm not saying that's for everybody. That's a hard thing to have to try and do day in, day out. Um, but I, I feel like I am, I, and it's exhausting. It's, it's exhausting, and I do have to take time to rest for myself mm -hmm. um, because I feel being able to rest is just an, as much as part of the revolution as everything else. Um, mm -hmm. Because if I can't rest and re-energize, then how am I going to be able to keep fighting this fight? So I, I, I didn't. I've only learned this perhaps in the last year that I shouldn't feel guilty for resting, mm -hmm. and I shouldn't feel guilty for having a nap. Because I love a good nap, by the way. I love a good nap. I feel like it re-energizes me. And it feel, I feel quite good having a nice nap during the day. And I used to feel really guilty about it because we've been conditioned to think that our worth, it is a capitalist mindset, but we have been conditioned to think that our worth is based on our productivity with, with something coming out of it. So oh, if I've not been working all day long and produced this, this and this, then I'm not good enough. But that, that's that's not it being able that's to rest world, right mm, that is the west yes yes mm. that is a think about india right mm. like even when you go to india now after they've had roti in the afternoon everyone has a nap oh, everyone has a, yeah and other other if other cultures do too everyone has a siesta in, yes, in, in parts of the world exactly because also geographically quite because it's quite hot at that time of the day so it does make sense for them just to have a nap and then they stay up later in the day but there is nothing wrong with rest rest is, is yeah is is and just as important as anything else all you have to do is just look back to where your roots are and you'll see things like you know how how our, our parents or grandparents lived in their home countries right yeah. 
mirrors that for us. And we, we're born in the Western world. We're conditioned to that. So we think that time is money. That's what's been hammered into here. So that's why we begin to feel guilty about it. Because if we want to keep up with our white peers, then we've got to constantly stay on the hamster wheel, right? And do overtime, do more. Yeah, don't get me wrong, we've all been there. I was that person. I was that person that thought, I need to get in half an hour early and leave an hour later than everybody else just to prove something. When at the end of the day, because I work quite efficiently, I was still doing it in the hours that I was meant to. So I don't know why I was pressuring myself pressuring myself more um but yeah we need to challenge that mindset and yeah i'm really glad you noted that that this is a western perspective a western way of thinking mm. um and perhaps this world uh, more widely this is how we're taught to behave um and we learn this from school um we learn that we are products of 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 well, our labor and and how we work is our only asset so when we leave school, we do that at university. And when we leave university, we think, okay, we need to go straight into work. Um, and we go into these jobs um, where we are encouraged to stay later, stay there all day long. And they'll, they'll, they'll blind you with these other assets. They'll tell you, oh, you can do a yoga class at 7 p.m. There'll be, a, there's a gym here. We've got everything you need here at the workplace. There's never a need to go home. Yeah. Um, you need to question that if that's a space where you're spending more time in your place of work than your place of rest, there, there's a question to ask there. Mm, yes, good thing to point out. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, luckily, I'm not part of that, so it's okay. Yeah, we're neither of us are part of the world, thankfully. <laughs> I don't think as artists and creatives, we could we could survive there, you know? So but we, we have our own problems in the sense that we don't know how to switch off either. <laughs> yes. Our, our job is also well. 24 <laughs> that's why we're here at 10 30 yeah. in the evening because we never stop <laughs> oh, because we love our viewers so much <laughs> so, in your work of activism who inspires you oh i like i said before historically there are people that inspire me um if I think about the brown women or women of color that inspire me, I think of women like Jin Kuo, I think about my Bago, I think about uh, Sophia Dalip Singh, I think about the women in our history that I look up to and think, yo, these women were so strong. They were so powerful. If I think about Maharani Jin Kuo, even the amount of fear that that woman evoked in the British is so admirational. I'm like, that woman, scared the British Empire for a number of reasons. Um, her existence scared them. And just thinking about that that kind of woman um, and in terms of activism, obviously Sophia Dilip Singh is a huge part of the suffragette movement that can't be ignored. Um, and then there's writers that I'm really inspired by, Maya Angelou, um, Audre Lorde, um, and, and there are women in the, the kind of black feminist movement that I definitely look up to. Um, especially people like Audre Lorde, I guess I, I resonate with those women because they were educators like myself, so they were teachers, they were poets like myself, um, and they were avid feminists like myself. So I look up to those women quite a lot because I'm like, well, well they did it and, and their, their memories have lived on. And not only just because people quote them, you probably see their quotes being thrown around mm -hmm. in Twitter and places like that, and you'll see them in captions, but these women really lived 
what they believed. Like I said, those women lived mm -hmm. these things day day out to the day that they died. So um, yeah, there's a couple of people uh, that I look up to. I like that. You know your history. You know the people that lived it that inspire you and give you that same courage, right? It's it's important to have that inspiration, right? Um, and there's always been like a ton of people before us if we choose to see them, right? And, and their, their stories may not have been told before. Their stories may not be in your textbooks. They may not be in the, the top selling books. It may be a case of you having to find their stories and to look a little bit deeper and to search yourself, do your own research, do your own learning and not relying on just the resources that you're being provided um, is quite important because for us specifically, a lot of our stories haven't been told before or they have been erased or ignored. So it may, may require you to do a little bit of digging, uh, but they are there. Those stories are there. Absolutely. I think it's always that. It's always that that interest that we express in others, um, in our ancestors, to learn mm. that about them. And as an activist myself, my inspiration comes from Grunanak. And I think that he's a figure from our history that has not been portrayed in his true strength. Um mm we fall into the mistake of believing that the concept of Sant Sipahi came later through the lineage of the gurus, but he modeled it for us from the yes. beginning. And he yeah. was an activist in his, his everyday work. From the moment he was born, he challenged everything. And mm -hmm. he made everybody around him uncomfortable to contemplate mm -hmm. what they're doing and how they're connecting. And to do that at that time, to raise mm -hmm. your voice, takes so much courage and takes that mm -hmm. spirit of a warrior. And mm -hmm. I think that we need to adjust our lens as to how we see, the, see him as this, like, you know, round, cute, fluffy Santa Claus type figure, which he yeah. was not. Yeah. Right? And, and like you've just said, he, he modeled, he was modeling the, 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 the behavior that was then later written about and documented. But yes, all of those things can be found in, in, in Guruji. And, and you're right, we do need to question why that lens of him has been created in that way why has he be, been portrayed that way um historically who's been writing that who's been saying that who's been convincing us of that and maybe questioning that a little bit um i've never thought of that before but i'm really i'm really glad you you brought well, it up i think as as academics and researchers which is where we sit as well um our key job is to never take the information mm. that reaches you accessibly it's yeah. always hunting and continuing to question and mm. looking at every possible other angle that could exist. That's yeah. what makes an academic, that's what makes a researcher. Because mm. if we're just taking the information we're spoon-fed, we're just going to yeah. regurgitate the same thing. And that's not yeah. research. We need to be questioning and, and anal analysing and evaluating everything that we're, we're shown, whether that's through an academic lens and the books that we're reading and also online what we're being shown. Mm -hmm. um, and what things are being regurgitated and, and questioning the sources we're seeing online as well. Um, I do a lot of that work for younger people as well in schools, talking about how to be, um, how, how to work on online and understand the online world and to question fake news, understand mm -hmm. what echo chambers are, um, how to stay safe online and all those sorts of things. I, I do mm -hmm. a lot of that work with people um but yeah questioning what we see in front right. of us being um, critical thinkers 
yeah. being critical thinkers what audience is that thing for hmm. who has written it what 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 was their motive um when they were creating it creating it and these are skills that historians have to learn um even in school uh, but further into university but these are skills that i think everybody should be applying into their daily lives and and, and yeah being critical thinkers yeah that's definitely Absolutely. the right right word. and as a critical thinker what <laughs> was it that inspired you to want to become an author and put together an amazing book called brown girl like me so brown girl like me uh it's <laughs> It's, it's, it's all still um, quite new, but it's not new in the sense that Brown Girl Like Me is an idea that's been in my head for, I'd say, at least 10 years now. So when I was kind of finishing school, going to university, this was a book that I felt needed to exist. And what I mean by that is that growing up, I felt a constant sense of erasure when it came to the brown woman's experience and the brown woman's voice. I never saw us in books. I never saw us in fiction. I never saw us in literature. I never saw our histories. And then I never saw us on TV. I never saw us in other forms of representation. And even if I did see us on TV, it would always be in forms of satire and comedy. Um, mm. And when I saw mm. brown women, it was always playing on these tropes and stereotypes of what an Asian woman is. Um, and I wanted to challenge that. I knew brown women are so much more than these tropes that we keep on seeing. And I was so tired of it. I was tired of it through uni and then going into the working world. I was still tired of it because I was even being erased in the workplace as well. And that's when I realized, you know what? It's time that I write this book. It's been formulating in my head for so long. Let's do it. And um, my husband and I spent a good amount of time understanding the publishing world. So there's different forms of publishing, there's self-publishing, there's the crowdfunding route, there's the more traditional route, which is the one I ended up taking. Understanding that what a role of a literary agent is and, and who they are and how they can support you in your journey, who the publishers are and different types of publishers. And we really spent, my husband and I spent about at least two years researching that um, wow. over the last two years just gone. Um, and we understood the processes because at the end of the day, we didn't know anybody within our family, within our close friends who have published a book. We didn't have that cultural capital that perhaps white counterparts might have that they mm. know someone who's published a book. So let me just ask them how they did it. I didn't know anybody like that. So I had to really dig out and do my research, maybe look into my wider networks of people to speak to. Um, and then we got on that road, we got on that journey, we put the idea of the book together. Um, I found myself an amazing literary agent who I, I couldn't ask more of. Um, and then we sent the ideas out to publishers. And here we are. I signed with Pan Macmillan um, last mm -hmm. month. I signed with them back in May. Um, and the press release came out a few weeks ago. Congratulations. Um, Sorry, I want to scream because I'm so happy. <laughs> There's something really to celebrate. You're the second sister I've had on here. And to have Punjabi Sikh women as accomplished authors in the professional world is incredible and we need to celebrate this. We do, we do. And um, 
oh yeah it's it's a dream come true because like i said it's something i've been imagining for so long but it's been a hard road to get here um obviously people will see the result they'll see the press release and they'll obviously see the book when it comes out but they may not always get to know about the long journey to get here the struggles mm. to get the rejections the failures to pick myself up from those rejections and keep on going um has been a tough journey but I've got here I'm here and I'm here to tell a story and that story is that story of what it means to be a brown woman here in the UK um it's quite a millennial perspective so it's looking at like us having been born here in the UK, what it is like balancing this very intersectional identity that we have. We're living in this Western world, but we still want to stay very connected with our identity and who we are um, and everything that comes with that. So in the home, um, in our cultures, I'll be looking at issues to do with mental health and the workplace, education um, and essentially it will be challenging a lot of those old tropes that we've seen. And it will also be, in a sense, a guidebook to future generations on kind of the toolkit that I felt like I always needed. Mm. Um, and that's how the title came about. So that's how Brown Girl Like Me uh, felt like a really fitting title, because I was always wondering, is there a brown girl like me? Is anyone else going through the things that I'm going through? Mm. And once you start to look and you look for this sisterhood, you realize that you're not alone there is another girl out there, another brown girl like me. So that's that's the book. It's uh, my I'm book so baby that I'm currently working on. Um, it'll be coming out next year, so autumn 2021. Um, I'm currently still writing it, um, still in the process of writing, which will be kind of happening for the next year. Um, and then it's coming out next autumn. That's amazing. And uh, sorry, I was talking over you because I'm so excited. And so <laughs> about viewers as well they're also excited to read it so we have to wait a year but we're here in your corner we're supporting you and we're excited for when it's going to come out and um you need to we, we need to all come out and support you like you said when the book comes out we each have a responsibility to buy at least five copies <laughs> with everybody and, and, and get them for get them for your daughter get them for your niece get it for your cousin get it for auntie down the road like that's what I want it to be, a gift that you can give to other brown women and um, mm. things that you can pass on, stories that you can pass on. I really imagine it in community spaces and schools um, in book clubs. That's what I really hope it does. And it won't be an answer to everything. I'm hoping what it does is poses questions um, mm. and gives space for people to ask questions and to talk about a lot of the topics that I brought up in the book. Um, so yeah, I'm really hoping to see that that's what will come from it when it comes out into the world. As a sister, I'm so proud of you for doing that work, to do it the right way, because we do have authors, but they're self-published. Or they've gone, you know, like, I, I don't want to say it, but like they go the Desi route, they go to India, they find a publisher, and then that's about it. You never hear of their book in in the mainstream it's never going to be a new york times bestseller you know what i mean and there's definitely a space for self-publishing that, that was also an option that i thought about and um, because like i said getting into the publishing world is a different difficult one for people of color um to have to navigate yourself into that so sometimes you've got to be like you know what i'm just going to take this into my own hands and take this power into my own ha hands and self-publish but what that does mean is that the editing process 
a lot of it will fall on you. The marketing, the PR, a lot of that will have to be put on you as an individual. And I felt like I needed the people with the skills of these things to do it for me. I'm, I, I haven't got the experience in all these things. I've been trying my best, managing my own social media for years, marketing myself for years, doing my own PR for years. But for this book, I felt like it deserved more. And I felt like I needed to get the respectable people that had the experience in these fields, but also understood me and I also understood the message of the book. So that's why first my agent and also Pam McMillan um, with the imprint Bluebird, who, who I've signed with, I felt like really understood me and they really understood the book and they wouldn't try to create something else or try to change the narrative or, or my voice, uh, which is really, really important. So there's a space for all of them even for crowdfunding for a book I think there's a space for that too they all have their kind of pros and cons even the route that I've taken has its pros and cons definitely um but yeah I felt like this was the right thing for me and the right thing for this book that's awesome and it's not easy to get into that mainstream world um but it's it's wonderful to be able to become a leader for us other sisters right to, to pave the way and hopefully, you know, we'll have a lot more female and male sick authors mm -hmm. coming forward as well. Um, there's loads of people, Sonny Kelsey, he's very excited to buy the book already. So Sonny, you. you have to wait a year at the moment, but if there is any, anybody out there who's looking to buy a good book, then I want you to go to seenostranger.com that is a book that you also must read that has only been recently released a few weeks ago um, by a Punjabi Sikh sister, Valerie Kaur. So we have to support our sisters. And as soon as Jaspreet's book comes out, we all have to buy that book, okay? We're gonna be talking about it here in our Core Voices space. And you guys need to talk about it everywhere else as well, because this is our chance to change the narrative, right? Mm -hmm. This is this is our chance. This, hopefully, this book will will be a starting point for that for for brown women. Um, this is just setting a foundation. I hope we can build so much on it. Um, so yeah, I need your support, guys, next year when it comes out. Yes, hundred <laughs> percent. Everybody in the core voices community is already with you. Like that's a given. A given level of support. We're all going to be out there buying the book and giving it to everybody else as well. So. Um, that's guaranteed. <laughs> Before we wrap up, um, there's something that we talked about this week that I loved in our conversation. There were so many things that you and I talked about. Um, you're talking about family values. And I think that that is something in our modern world, in our modern generation, that is presented to us negatively. You you're new in your marriage. I'm going to say you're still in your honeymoon phase, right? In the <laughs> right? We, we um, are. We are. I don't think we're ever going to get out of it. That's good. Don't. Please. <laughs> there, okay? That's the way to do it. So we talked about um, how you and I both felt about the extended Punjabi family structure and how we support that and see it as valuable. And it's been painted negatively in more recent years. Um and you chose actively with your partner, with your husband, to recreate and live in an extended family. And I would love for you to share a little bit of that inspiration as to what it was that didn't allow 
the negativity of living with your in-laws deter you from wanting to build a family together? I'm I'm really happy to be talking about this because I feel it's um, something we don't get to hear about a lot um, and a lot of young women um, especially around the age of where they're hoping to get married or planning to get married come speak to me about this um, and I'm always happy and here to help because I, I decided um, my husband and I decided that when we were getting married that I wanted to live with his family I grew up in a very large family and I loved having a large family and growing up in an intergenerational household. We had my grandparents, my parents, me and my siblings, and then later on my nephews and nieces. Um, so I always loved growing up in a big, big household and lots of family around me. So that's definitely something I wanted after marriage as well. Um, and you're absolutely right. Unfortunately, living in the West, we've been convinced that this this individualistic lifestyle is the way to live. Um, that is the lifestyle that is promoted in our society to live alone, live as a couple, live away from extended family. And I understand everyone's got their own path and their own journey to explore. But I felt personally that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be with family. Um, so in our household, there's myself, my husband, um, my father-in-law, my mother-in-law, BG, who everyone sees lots of online because she is my best friend. And there's no exaggeration in that. I We call each other soulmates. She has a joke um, that she laughs that her and I must have been connected in another life because when her and I met, or if you see our relationship now, you can see there's a special connection between us both. I don't know, maybe we were, it's connected in another life, but I definitely feel a very unconditional amount of love from her that even now gets me quite emotional because I love her so so much um and I felt like that's a huge part of who we are the Sikh Punjabi community is a huge part of who we are to be um connected with our families and wider than our community if we think about us as humans, we as civilization have always lived in communities. We have, since the beginning of time, lived in units because there's benefits of doing that. We can support one another, we can be there for one another. Um, and I feel like people are craving that these days. That's why we're online all the time. That's why we're on social media all the time because we're craving that social interaction. And I feel families can provide that. And unfortunately, in the media, there's always really negative representations of that relationship with in-laws, the mother-in-law, daughter-in-law groups that we see everywhere. We need to be challenging that. And for me, thankfully, it's been through open communication from the very outset with all, all the family members. We've always been very good at communicating with one another, expressing how we're feeling. Also setting our boundaries is also quite important to make sure everybody knows what each other needs and, and doesn't need. Um, mm. Setting up spaces and those sorts of things are important too, but it's all based on communication. Um, and that comes from always, that comes from me to my in-laws, my in-laws to me and to the other people within that relationship too. Communication is key for any relationship. Um, and what I wanna challenge is this idea that once you get married, your whole life ends. And especially as a woman, you'll never get to do anything. <laughs> so ignore that trope. We're going to keep challenging it. When I got married, we went away and traveled for 12 months. Um, I've released a book, Being a Married Woman, Living with My In-Laws. If 
I'm challenging all those perceptions that people might think that if you're going to get married and you're going to live that life, that's it, everything ends for you. It does not. Of course it does not. Um, and you can still live a lifestyle that you want even through those things. So mm. I, I feel like in a way it's another bit of pressure that I feel like I'm modeling the behavior that I feel like I want to see in the world. And mm. um, that's why I share mine and Bidi's relationship online. And when we're hanging out together, I wanna share that with people because I wanna show what it can look like. Yes. Um, but don't get me wrong, I understand that's not the case for everybody. People have tried this and it hasn't worked, but don't give up don't give up so easily on relationships don't give up so easily on love don't give up so easily on family um mm. it all gets me really emotional because I'm quite passionate about this um mm. and it's something I don't talk about a lot but I feel like I'm, I'm ready to start talking about it more um that we need to stop being so individualistic we need to live with compassion and more empathy um and again like my dad always says that starts at home um Oh, you're amazing. I'm, I'm so grateful that you shared that with us. And I feel the same way. I think that the biggest strength of not just our community, but all communities is that it's family, it's unity. And it starts at home. And if we can't appreciate the people around us, we may not always see eye to eye, but if we can yeah. develop good communication, that can help us. And, um, you know, maybe that's the first step for a lot of us is just trying to have open communication and improving those relationships and not giving up so easily. I love that. Yeah. And I was watching on your social media, you, you grew some carrots with BG. Yes. <laughs> so we, this is probably my second proudest achievement during lockdown, as well as the book deal. Um, towards the start of lockdown, uh, we built some vegetable beds in our garden. BG has always had green fingers, so she's always been growing stuff. So like my husband and I... <laughs> been learning so much from her. I don't know how they hold this much knowledge but we've been learning so much from her built these vegetable beds and um, we started off with potatoes and carrots um, and we just harvested the first batch of carrots this week and I was so proud they were only baby carrots and they're still quite small um, but we made aloo um, and gudger sabji I made carrot cake today we're planning to make gudger achar um, but there's something so special about growing your own food growing your own produce from the moment we built those beds to sowing the seeds, to nurturing the soil, um, and then to harvesting it, kind of being a part of that whole process and then eating it, nourishing yourself with the things mm -hmm. that you have grown. Oh my God, it's so special. Um, next week we're harvesting the potatoes, so I'll share that with you guys when the potatoes come out. Uh, but BD has definitely taught us so much and she's helped us throughout the whole process. Um, and seeing how happy it makes her, You've, you saw the picture and maybe you guys saw the picture and video online, you can see the happiness in her face. Um, how happy she is to be doing it with us is a big thing. Because um, she's been doing gardening and all these things alone, usually it's a big hobby for her. So we give her her own time too, when she needs it, because yeah. it is her hobby. Um, but yeah, she loves doing it with us. She, oh. it's, it's, yeah. yeah, it's so really special and so important because there's so many pearls of wisdom that we're going to receive. And one of the things that we've all grown up with is hearing that it's the blessings of Adiandia Asisa. Those mm -hmm. blessings that we receive from our elders, they truly do help us to thrive because it's a different level of love, you know. Mm -hmm. um, they, of course, they've got the right to yell at us when we're wrong, right? 
we have to call right to their love as well. And that's our responsibility to nurture those relationships. Um, leaning into our parents to support them with their difficulties and, you know, extending out that love to the elder generation as well. And they were there for us when we were younger. We can't abandon them in their old age. That's not who we are. Um, it's not. It's, yeah, I mean, it's something that really is close to my heart. There's, it just feels so wrong. Um, now in Punjab, there are a lot more residential homes as well. Mm. Other countries too, which are just made for the Punjabi community. That breaks my heart. Like it, and there's there's a space for if if somebody is in need of medical care and if it's safer mm -hmm. for them in those spaces or perhaps they're for for that elderly family member their medical needs needs to be supported through a care system or nursing system so they might have to be in those spaces that I can completely understand um, and it is hard to be a carer and 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 I don't want to um, devalidate any of that um, but the wider picture that we're talking about about family and family units is, yeah. is something really important that we uphold and continue and, and don't lose. Absolutely, I agree. And, and yes, in some circumstances, we have to make difficult decisions. Um, but in some circumstances, we have to be the ones to do the uncomfortable thing and come out of our apprehension and just build relationship and build love. Oh, just breathe. Thank you. My heart's all like melty and squishy. Yeah, so much. So mine is too. <laughs> oh. oh my gosh. This the time has just flown. I can't believe the time right now. It's been two hours. We should, we should, yeah. <laughs> People might need to get into bed. <laughs> yeah. I want to thank everybody who's tuned in to join us. Um, this was so enjoyable. I can't believe how fast the time flew. It's been incredible to have you with us. And I think just that that last topic that we were talking about is a beautiful place for us to just draw the conversation to an end and let everybody sit with that love and developing family relationships. Just breathe. you're beautiful, you're incredible. Thank you for doing the work that you're doing and know that this is an extension of your family here in this space. Um, come back soon and talk to us again because there's so many things I wanted to ask you that we didn't talk about just yet. We'll save them all for the next one. We'll save them all for the next <laughs> one. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for everyone who tuned in. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Core Voices and thank you, Jaspreet, for being with us today.